So the Old Testament reading that we just heard uh, read a few moments ago is among the most grave and most powerful in the whole of the Bible. It's hard to imagine a passage with higher stakes or that might provoke more profound questions, questions about God and faith and our relation to both. The great preacher Fleming Rutledge refers to this as a 20 megaton passage with an enormous payload and punch capable of destroying our preconceived notions of who God is and what it might mean to walk with him. Powerful enough, we might say, to transform the landscape of our lives and our faith. This morning, as we focus on this passage and how it might detonate in our lives this Lenten season, I'd like to consider it in relation to the idea of proofing. Proofing is a bakery term, as many of you will know. With a bake involving yeast, the dough must be allowed to rest, preferably in a cool place, that the dough might prove that the yeast might ferment and produce gases and leaven the dough, ideally speaking. For me, it doesn't always work that way. But in proofing, the value of the yeast is demonstrated. Its health and contribution are made clear. The term's application to Genesis 22 is obvious in one way, I think the testing of Abraham's faith by God, the proving of Abraham's faith in this remarkable and disturbing way. Yet I'd like to draw our attention as well to a second proofing in this passage, more subtle perhaps, but no less important. That is the proving of Yahweh, the demonstration of the Lord's character and qualities. So two proofings, the proving of Abraham the proving of the Lord, of Yahweh. So first, Abraham. As I said, what God asks of Abraham is incredibly disturbing. But what is perhaps even more remarkable is Abraham's pretty quick response. The writer of the story does not invite us into Abraham's mind here and simply declares that God has spoken in this way, clear and unambiguously. We could perhaps to get background, point to the worship of other gods during this time in this area, some of whom were known in their worship to expect and receive human and even child sacrifice. Whatever the reason, Abraham responds with immediate and sustained obedience. The next morning, he gathers all he has that he's going to need for it, and he goes on a three-day journey before the deed can be done. Can you imagine the weight of those three days journeying with his son? While the story does not invite us into Abraham's mind, the way the details are drawn out regarding each of the steps Abraham takes and the way moment, the, the time is kind of stretched out and slowed down, as well as the personal language that's used to link Abraham and Isaac together, highlights for us the agonizing, horrifying reality. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. To understand the full extent of what God is commanding here, we need to see that command in larger context. For one, Isaac is not actually Abraham's only biological son. There's Ishmael. But in a unique way, in light of the larger context, Isaac is singular. 
Abraham's story for us begins in Genesis 12 with a very similar command to what we hear in Genesis 22. Go from your country, your kindred, your family to the land that I will show you. For Abraham, that is a command to be separated from his past. Leave your heritage, the solidity of the people who know and love you, the wealth base, the social capital you have, and go. And from that time forward, Abraham is no longer able to rely on the stuff of his past. He is, in this profound way, dependent on the word of God, his life oriented around Yahweh's voice. He's cast off into the wilderness with nothing to guide him, nothing to rely on, but that voice, that word. But as difficult as that is, Abraham did this. He left his home, the comfort of it behind, with a promise. He left with a promise. The promise, I'll make you a great nation. I will make your name great. A blessing from you will come many nations. Your children will be as numerous as the stars. He left, he entered into the wilderness with a clear promise, with a hoped-for destination, a hoped-for end. To set out in the wilderness, to cast off from the security of one's home is a terribly challenging thing. Some of us in our community know this. We're privileged to have immigrants among us. But it can be done. People do this with the promise of something more, something greater or grander. Think of those who every day come to the United States' southern border, leaving all that they know behind. A terrible, costly thing done with the promise of something more. This is what makes the test here, the proving in Genesis 22, so extraordinary. There is no such promise given. The charge Abraham receives is to set out on the most distressing journey, the most forbidding wilderness, with no promise on the other side. Take your son, your only son whom you love and whom all the promises you have are embodied and sacrifice him. Set out with no hope of a better, grander, greater destination. As one writer has put it in Genesis 12, Abraham has been cut off from his past, and here he is commanded to sever himself from the future. In the wilderness, with no clear promise, no hoped for end, by God's command. There are times there are moments, there are seasons where the commands of God, the word of the Lord, makes no earthly sense. The command to go and leave beloved friends and family behind. The command to wait when everything in you tells you to flee. The command to love when nature and culture would tell us to protect ourselves or lash out. Many of you know precisely what I am talking about in your commitment to faithfulness and chastity in marriage or out, when there are so many shortcuts to the intimacy, the experience of it, to companionship that we crave, in the daily sacrifices for children, serving them, committing them to the Lord and his purposes and not our own, in sacrificial generosity, when the temptation to press for our own advantage is there, resisting evil, walking in the way of peace, the way of the cross, when it makes no earthly sense. Steps of faith that so often seem to stab us in the back. 
Abraham's faith here, I think, is encapsulated in this phrase he utters twice before the Lord. Here I am. A posture of relinquishment. This is what we are doing this Lenten season in whatever discipline or practice God has invited you to. In prayer, we're saying, here I am with my petitions, my thanksgivings and misgivings, my laments. Here is my heart. In scripture, here I am, my mind, my time, my imagination, available to your reading of reality. Here I am in fasting or stillness, my appetites and desires available to you for your shaping. Sometimes saying here I am feels like stepping onto a sinking ship. It seems like it has no point and no future. This is precisely the test, the proving of Abraham. Here I am, when humanly speaking, in terms of the way the world works, there's no way forward. There's no way out of the wilderness God has called him into. There are times when obedience feels like death, like an invitation to wilderness without end. That's the proving. That's the test of Abraham. Esau Macaulay, a canon theologian in our diocese, recently recounted a situation where he was asked about his reason for hope when it comes to race and justice in America. He writes about this in his book, Reading While Black, as well. He commented that there's no social program or trend, no political administration or program, as good and important as they might be, that would be the basis for that hope. Rather, he stated, my hope is not rooted in any outward sign of societal or churchly progress. My hope for the future is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. His defeat of death gives me hope. Hope, we might say, for something beyond the wilderness. This is where the proving of Yahweh comes in. That we know more than Abraham, that we know that this is all a test, makes his statement that's subtle and easily missed in verse 5 all that more remarkable. For all Abraham knows, this journey, this three-day journey, ends with wood, a fire, a knife, and his beloved son, the hope for the future on a cold, hard slab. But even so, despite that being all he has to go on, verse 5, he says to his servants, wait here, we will worship, and we will come back to you. Do you hear it? We not I alone, but we together will return on the other side of what God has commanded. What is the basis for that statement? We may read it as dissembling, right? He doesn't want to provoke the servants. He doesn't want to provoke Isaac. But scripture suggests something different. The writer of Hebrews referring to this passage sees something more behind this statement. Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 reads, referring to Abraham and Isaac here in Genesis 22, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. With no kind of previous hope of the resurrection, but with a sense that God is able to do more than he could ask or imagine, Abraham was able to say, here I am, even in the darkest of circumstances. 
And the writer of Hebrews suggests that the provision of the ram is a, a figurative resurrection, a returning of his son to life by the word of the Lord. What is proven in Genesis 22 is yes, a measure of Abraham's faith, his fear of the Lord. His status is preserved for posterity. He's the father of faith for millions and billions. And for us, he's an example of what faith looks like. But Genesis 22 also proves the character and power of God. It is God who receives a new description, a new moniker, the providing Lord, the Lord who makes a way. In his presence, on the mountain of the Lord, needs are met. The word provide there is in the original language, the, the verb to see. That is, the Lord will see to it. He will see to my future. He will see to his promises. He will see me through the wilderness and to the other side. Like yeast, the living God rises to the occasion. His goodness and power will see to it. It's this reality, the tested, proven character of God, his goodness, his ability to provide, that forms the basis of Abraham's radical faith. He's able to entrust himself entirely, able to wholeheartedly say, here I am, because of who Yahweh has proven himself to be. Proven he is not like the other gods who take, to whom one might give their child their future and gain nothing in return. He's not like the idols who take and are unable to deliver, to provide and make a way. And every day we do give ourselves up, give our children up, give our future up to one God or another, to the idols who cannot provide or to the one God who can. In our gospel reading, Jesus said, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. To follow the example of Abraham is to lose. To follow Jesus is to lose. Saying yes to him is saying no to other things. It's perhaps to lose a great deal. If you have not yet had that experience in following Jesus, you will. Yet by the grace and power of God, that losing becomes the means by which we are saved, by which we gain a future. In the verses that follow ours this morning in Genesis 22, the promise of God to Abraham is renewed. It's reiterated, confirmed again. In light of Abraham's faith, it's upheld. In some mysterious way, it's only through this test that Abraham can become the father of many nations. It's only through releasing his future embodied in Isaac that it is preserved. In God's economy, the way to be saved is to lose it all to him, to go all in and to release the future that it might be gained and renewed. We see that such trust is possible and good in his provision here, in God's provision here in Genesis 22. But we see it that much more in his provision for us in Jesus Christ. Abraham is brought to the brink and at the last minute does not have to give up his son, the only son whom he loves. 
Yet what Abraham does not ultimately do, God does. He gives up his one beloved son, and in him he provides what we cannot, what we could not. Forgiveness, justification, triumph over sin and death. Jesus speaks these words about losing life and saving it, and then he proves them on the cross. He stretches himself out beyond the limit with perfect trust in the Father, with no human or earthly hope of a future. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that wilderness, the provision, the power of God is proven in this ultimate way. He gains life for us all. This is God's invitation for you today. With yourself, with your life, with your children, with your future, they will be given up. They will be spent on behalf of something. Best that they be given up, spent on behalf of the God who provides, the God who sees to it. I don't know what specific form that invitation takes in your life, what particular thing there might be for you to entrust that much more. But God's invitation on this second Sunday of Lent, this season of wilderness, is to entrust yourself that much more to him, to set your hope on the risen Lord and the one who raised him, the God who provides, to lose your future that it might be gained. Fleming Rutledge closes her sermon on this 20 megaton passage this way. To believe in God, to fear God, is to trust him totally and put oneself in his hands totally. Even when the road leads on into God's forsakenness, even when the fulfillment of God's promise seems to have receded into impossibility. In the life of faith lived by Christians, we live in witness to the testimony that nothing, nothing at all can destroy the promised future because the promised future belongs to our God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.